Chapter Two of the Nigger of the Narcissus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nigger of the Narcissus by Joseph Conrad. Chapter Two, Part One. Next morning at daylight, the Narcissus went to sea. A slight haze blurred the horizon. Outside the harbor, the measureless expanse of smooth water lay sparkling like a floor of jewels and as empty as the sky. The short black tug gave a pluck to windward in the usual way, then let go the rope and hovered for a moment on the quarter with her engine stopped while the slim long hull of the ship moved ahead slowly under lower topsails. The loose upper canvas blew out in the breeze with soft round contours resembling small white clouds snared in the maze of ropes. Then the sheets were hauled home, the yards hoisted, and the ship became a high and lonely pyramid, gliding, all shining and white, through the sunlit mist. The tug turned short round and went away towards the land. Twenty-six pairs of eyes watched her low, broad stern crawling languidly over the smooth swell between the two paddle-wheels that turned fast, beating the water with fierce hurry. She resembled an enormous and aquatic black beetle, surprised by the light, overwhelmed by the sunshine, trying to escape with ineffectual effort into the distant gloom of the land. She left a lingering smudge of smoke on the sky, and two vanishing trails of foam on the water. On the place where she had stopped, a round black patch of soot remained, undulating on the swell, an unclean mark of the creature's rest. The Narcissus left alone, heading south, seemed to stand resplendent and still upon the restless sea under the moving sun. Flakes of foam swept past her sides, and the water struck her with flashing blows. The land glided away, slowly fading. A few birds screamed on motionless wings over the swaying mastheads. But soon the land disappeared, the birds went away, and to the west the pointed sail of an Arab dhow running for Bombay rose triangular and upright above the sharp edge of the horizon, lingered and vanished like an illusion. Then the ship's wake, long and straight, stretched itself out through a day of immense solitude. The setting sun, burning on the level of the water, flamed crimson below the blackness of heavy rain-clouds. The sunset squall coming up from behind dissolved itself into the short deluge of a hissing shower. It left the ship glistening from trunks to water-line and with darkened sails. She ran easily before a fair monsoon, with her decks cleared for the night, and moving along with her was heard the sustained and monotonous swishing of the waves, mingled with the low whispers of men mustered aft for the setting of watches, the short plaint of some block aloft, or, now and then, a loud sigh of wind. Mr. Baker, coming out of his cabin, called out the first name sharply before closing the door behind him. He was going to take charge of the deck. On the homeward trip, according to an old custom of the sea, the chief officer takes the first night watch from eight till midnight. So Mr. Baker, after he had heard the last yes, sir, said moodily, relieve the wheel and look out and climbed with heavy feet the poop-ladder to windward. Soon after Mr. Crichton came down, whistling softly, and went into the cabin. 
On the doorstep the steward lounged, in slippers, meditative, and with his shirt-sleeves rolled up to the armpits. On the main deck the cook, locking up the galley doors, had an altercation with young Charlie about a pair of socks. He could be heard saying impressively, in the darkness amidships, "'You don't deserve a kindness. I've been drying them for you, and now you complain about the holes, and you swear, too.' right in front of me if i hadn't been a christian which you ain't you young ruffian i would give you a clout on the head go away men in couples or threes stood pensive or moved silently along the bulwarks in the waist the first busy day of a homeward passage was sinking into the dull peace of resumed routine aft on the high poop mr baker walked shuffling and grunted to himself in the pauses of his thoughts Forward, the lookout man, erect between the flukes of the two anchors, hummed an endless tune, keeping his eyes fixed dutifully ahead in a vacant stare. A multitude of stars coming out into the clear night peopled the emptiness of the sky. They glittered, as if alive above the sea. They surrounded the running ship on all sides, more intense than the eyes of a staring crowd, and as inscrutable as the souls of men. The passage had begun, and the ship, a fragment detached from the earth, went on lonely and swift, like a small planet. Round her the abysses of sky and sea met in an unattainable frontier. A great circular solitude moved with her, ever-changing and ever the same, always monotonous and always imposing. Now and then another wandering white speck, burdened with life, appeared far off, disappeared intent on its own destiny the sun looked upon her all day and every morning rose with a burning round stare of undying curiosity she had her own future she was alive with the lives of those beings who trod her decks like that earth which had given her up to the sea she had an intolerable load of regrets and hopes on her lived timid truth and audacious lies and like the earth she was unconscious fair to see and condemned my men to an ignoble fate the august loneliness of her path lent dignity to the sordid inspiration of her pilgrimage she drove foaming to the southward as if guided by the courage of a high endeavour the smiling greatness of the sea dwarfed the extent of time the days raced one after another brilliant and quick like the flashes of a lighthouse and the nights, eventful and short, resembled fleeting dreams. The men had shaken into their places, and the half-hourly voice of the bells ruled their life of unceasing care. Night and day the head and shoulders of a seaman could be seen aft by the wheel, outlined high against sunshine or starlight, very steady above the stir of revolving spokes. The faces changed, passing in rotation. Youthful faces bearded faces dark faces faces serene or faces moody but all akin with the brotherhood of the sea all with the same attentive expression of eyes carefully watching the compass or the sails captain alliston serious and with an old red muffler round his throat all day long pervaded the poop at night many times he rose out of the darkness of the companion such as a phantom above a grave and stood watchful and mute under the stars his night-shirt fluttering like a flag then without a sound sank down again 
He was born on the shores of the Pentlith Firth. In his youth he attained the rank of harpooner in Peterhead Whalers. When he spoke of that time his restless grey eyes became still, cold, like the loom of ice. Afterwards he went into the East Indian trade for the sake of change. He had commanded the Narcissus since she was built. He loved his ship, and drove her unmercifully, for his secret ambition was to make her accomplish some day a brilliantly quick passage which would be mentioned in nautical papers. He pronounced his owner's name with a sardonic smile, spoke but seldom to his officers, and reproved errors in a gentle voice with words that cut to the quick. His hair was iron-gray, his face hard and the color of pump-leather. He shaved every morning of his life, at six, but once, being caught in a fierce hurricane eighty miles southwest of Martis, he had missed three consecutive days. He feared not but an unforgiving God, and wished to end his days in a little house with a plot of land attached, far in the country, out of sight of the sea. He, the ruler of that minute world, seldom descended from the Olympian heights of his poop. Below him, at his feet, so to speak, common mortals led their busy and insignificant lives. Along the main deck, Mr. Baker grunted in a manner bloodthirsty and innocuous, and kept all our noses to the grindstone, being, as he once remarked, paid for doing that very thing. Men working about the deck were healthy and contented, as most seamen are, when once well out to sea. The true peace of God begins at any spot a thousand miles from the nearest land, and when he sends there the messengers of his might it is not in terrible wrath against crime, presumption, and folly, but paternally, to chasten simple hearts, ignorant hearts that know nothing of life, and beat undisturbed by envy or greed. In the evening the cleared decks had a reposeful aspect resembling the autumn of the earth, the sun was sinking to rest, wrapped in a mantle of warm clouds. Forward, on the end of the spare spars, the boatswain and the carpenter sat together with crossed arms, two men friendly, powerful, and deep-chested. Beside them the short, dumpy sailmaker, who had been in the navy, related, between the whiffs of his pipe, impossible stories about admirals. Couples tramp backwards and forwards, keeping step and balance without effort in a confined space. Pigs grunted in the big pigsty. Belfast, leaning thoughtfully on his elbow, above the bars, communed with them through the silence of his meditation. Fellows with shirts wide open on sunburnt breasts sat upon the mooring bits and all up the steps of the forecastle ladders. By the foremast a few discussed in a circle the characteristics of a gentleman. One said, It's money as does it. Another maintained, No, it's the way they speak. Lame Noel stumped up with an unwashed face. He had the distinction of being the dirty man of the forecastle, and showing a few yellow fangs and a shrewd smile, explained craftily that he had seen some of their pants, the backsides of them, he had observed, were thinner than paper from constant sitting down in offices, yet otherwise they looked first-rate and would last for years. It was all appearance. It was, he said, bloomin' easy to be a gentleman when you had a clean job for life. 
They disputed endlessly, obstinate and childish, they repeated in shouts and with inflamed faces their amazing arguments, while the soft breeze, eddying down the enormous cavity of the foresail, distended above their bare heads, stirred the tumble hair with a touch passing and light like an indulgent caress. They were forgetting their toil, they were forgetting themselves. The cook approached to hear and stood by, beaming with the inward consciousness of his faith, like a conceited saint unable to forget his glorious reward. Duncan, solitaire and brooding over his wrongs on the forecastle head, moved closer to catch the drift of the discussion below him. He turned his sallow face to the sea, and his thin nostrils moved, sniffing the breeze, as he lounged negligently by the rail. In the glow of sunset, faces shone with interest, teeth flashed, eyes sparkled. The walking couples stood still suddenly, with broad grins. A man bending over a washtub sat up entranced, with the soapsuds flecking his wet arms. Even the three petty officers listened, leaning back, comfortably propped, and with superior smiles. Belfast left off scratching the ear of his favorite pig, and, open-mouthed, tried with eager eyes to have his say. He lifted his arms, grimacing and baffled. From a distance, Charlie screamed at the ring, I know about gentlemen more'n any of you. I've been intimate with them. I've blackened their boots. The cook, craning his neck to hear better, was scandalized. Keep your mouth shut when your elders speak, you impotent young heathen you. All right, old hallelujah, I'm done, answered Charlie, soothingly. At some opinion of dirty knolls, delivered with an air of supernatural cunning, a ripple of laughter ran along, rose like a wave, burst with a startling roar. They stamped with both feet, they turned their shouting faces to the sky. Many, spluttering, slapped their thighs, while one or two, bent double, gasped, hugging themselves with both arms like men in pain the carpenter and boatswain without changing their attitude shook with laughter where they sat the sailmaker charged with an antidote about a commodore looked sulky the cook was wiping his eyes with a greasy rag and lame knolls astonished at his own success stood in their midst showing a slow smile Suddenly the face of Duncan, leaning high-shouldered over the after-rail, became grave. Something like a weak rattle was heard through the forecastle door. It became a murmur. It ended with a sighing groan. The washerman plunged both his hands into the tub abruptly. The cook became more crestfallen than an exposed backslider. The boatswain moved his shoulders uneasily. The carpenter got up with a spring and walked away while the sailmaker seemed mentally to give a story up and began to puff at his pipe with sombre determination in the blackness of the doorway a pair of eyes glimmered white and big and staring then james waite's head protruding became visible as if suspended between the two hands that grasped a doorpost on each side of the face the tassel of his blue woolen nightcap cocked forward danced gaily over his left eyelid he stepped out in a tottering stride. He looked powerful as ever, but showed a strange and affected unsteadiness in his gait. His face was perhaps a trifle thinner, 
and his eyes appeared rather startlingly prominent. He seemed to hasten the retreat of departing light by his very presence. The setting sun dipped sharply, as though fleeing before our nigger. A black mist emanated from him, a subtle and dismal influence, a something cold and gloomy that floated out and settled on all the faces like a morning veil. The circle broke up. The joy of laughter died on stiffened lips. There was not a smile left among all the ship's company. Not a word was spoken. Many turned their backs, trying to look unconcerned. Others, with averted heads, sent half-reluctant glances out of the corners of their eyes. They resembled criminals, conscious of misdeeds more than honest men distracted by doubt. Only two or three stared frankly but stupidly, with lips slightly open. All expected James Waite to say something, and at the same time had the air of knowing beforehand what he would say. He leaned his back against the doorpost, and with heavy eyes swept over them a glance domineering and pained, like a sick tyrant overawing a crowd of abject but untrustworthy slaves. No one went away. They waited in fascinated dread. He said, ironically, with gasps between the words, Thank you, chaps. You are nice and quiet, you are, yelling so before the door. He made a longer pause, during which he worked his ribs in an exaggerated labor of breathing. It was intolerable. Feet were shuffled. Belfast let out a groan, but Duncan above blinked his red eyelids with invisible eyelashes and smiled bitterly over the nigger's head. The nigger went on again with surprising ease. He gasped no more, and his voice rang hollow and loud, as though he had been talking in an empty cavern. He was contemptuously angry. I tried to get a wink of sleep. You know I can't sleep of nights and you come jabbering near the door here like a bloomin' lot of old women. You think yourselves good shipmates, do you? Much you care for a dying man. Belfast spun away from the pigsty. Jimmy, he cried tremulously, if you hadn't been sick, I would... He stopped. The nigger waited a while, then said in a gloomy tone, You would? What? Go and fight another one such as yourself. Leave me alone. It won't be for long. I'll soon die. It's coming, right enough. Men stood around very still, and with exasperated eyes. It was just what they had expected, and hated to hear. That idea of a stalking death thrust at them many times today like a boast and like a menace by this obnoxious nigger. He seemed to take a pride in that death, which, so far, had attended only upon the ease of his life, he was overbearing about it, as if no one in the world had ever been intimate with such a companion. He paraded it unceasingly before us with an affectionate persistence that made its presence indubitable, and at the same time incredible. No man could be suspected of such monstrous friendship. Was he a reality, or was he a sham, this ever-expected visitor of Jimmy's? We hesitated between pity and mistrust, while, on the slightest provocation, he shook before our eyes the bones of his bothersome and infamous skeleton. He was forever trotting him out. 
He would talk of that coming death as though it had been already there, as if it had been walking the deck outside, as if it would presently come in to sleep in the only empty bunk, as if it had sat by his side at every meal. It interfered daily with our occupations, with our leisure, with our amusements. We had no songs and no music in the evening, because Jimmy, we all lovingly called him Jimmy to conceal our hate of his accomplice, had managed, with that prospective decease of his, to disturb even Archie's mental balance. Archie was the owner of the Constantina, but after a couple of stinging lectures from Jimmy he refused to play any more. He said, "'Yon's an uncounted joker. I did not ken what's wrong with him, but there's something very wrong, very wrong. It's no matter of use asking me. I won't play.' Our singers became mute because Jimmy was a dying man. For the same reason, no chap, as Knowles remarked, could drive in a nail to hang his few poor rags upon, without being made aware of the enormity he committed in disturbing Jimmy's interminable last moments. At night, instead of the cheerful yell, One bell, turn out, do you hear there? Hey, 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 show leg! The watchers were called man by man, and whispers, so as not to interfere with Jimmy's, possibly, last slumber on earth. True, he was always awake, and managed, as we sneaked out on deck, to plant in our back some cutting remark that, for the moment, made us feel as if we had been brutes, and afterwards made us suspect ourselves of being fools. We spoke in low tones within that forecastle, as though it had been a church. We ate our meals in silence and dread, for Jimmy was capricious with his food and railed bitterly at the salt meat, at the biscuits, at the tea, as at articles unfit for human consumption, let alone for a dying man. He would say, Can't you find a better slice of meat for a sick man who's trying to get home to be cured or buried? But there, if I had a chance, you fellows would do away with it. You would poison me. Look at what you have given me. We served him in his bed with rage and humility, as though we had been the base courtiers of a hated prince, and he rewarded us by his unconciliating criticism. He had found the secret of keeping forever on the run the fundamental imbecility of mankind. He had the secret of life, that confounded dying man, and he made himself master of every moment of our existence. We grew desperate and remained submissive. Emotional little Belfast was forever on the verge of assault or on the verge of tears. One evening he confided to Archie, For off, Benny, I would knock his ugly black head off, this skulking dodger. And straightforward Archie pretended to be shocked. Such was the infernal spell which the casual St. Kitts nigger had cast upon our guileless manhood. But the same night, Belfast stole from the galley the officer's Sunday fruit pie to tempt the fastidious appetite of Jimmy. He endangered not only his long friendship with the cook, but also, as it appeared, his eternal welfare. The cook was overwhelmed with grief. He did not know the culprit, but he knew that wickedness flourished. He knew that Satan was abroad amongst those men, who he looked upon as in some way under a spiritual care. Whenever he saw three or four of us standing together, he would leave his stove to run out and preach. We fled from him, and only Charlie, who knew the thief, 
affronted the cook with a candid gaze which irritated the good man. "'It's you, I believe,' he groaned, sorrowful, and with a patch of soot on his chin. "'It's you. You are a brand for the burning. No more of your socks in my galley.' Soon, unofficially, the information was spread about that, should there be another case of stealing, our marmalade, an extra allowance, half a pound per man, would be stopped. Mr. Baker ceased to heap jocular abuse upon his favorites, and grunted suspiciously at all. The captain's cold eyes, high up on the poop, glittered mistrustful, as he surveyed us trooping in a small mob from halyards to braces for the usual evening pull at all the ropes. Such stealing in a merchant ship is difficult to check, and may be taken as a declaration by men of their dislike for their officers. It is a bad symptom. It may end in God knows what trouble. The Narcissus was still a peaceful ship, but mutual confidence was shaken. Duncan did not conceal his delight. We were dismayed. End of chapter 2, part 1